this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So I don't know if you've ever considered raising money for your company, going to a round of family and friends and asking them to chip in a few bucks to help you get your business off the ground, or maybe even a more sophisticated round, like a venture capital round, or even selling part or all of your business to a private equity company. Regardless, I think you're going to really enjoy this next interview with Barry Hinckley. He is a master at uh, having gone through now raising four rounds of financing for the company Bullhorn, which he ultimately sold for $135 million. Um, He shares in this interview some of the tricks of the trade, some of the the kind of nasty tactics VC uh, investors use to try to get you to give up uh, a lot of your equity or trade, change the terms of a deal. Um, Lots of ways here to defend yourself as you go raise money. Here's Barry Hinckley. Barry Hinckley, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to be here. Well, listen, before we get to your company, Bullhorn, I really want to actually ask you about being the captain of SV Dragonfire. What? <laughs> this is a 42-foot yacht. You you captain around the, the shores of uh, Massachusetts. Is that right? Well, I was born in New England, so SV stands for sailing vessel. Um, I grew up, you know, and you want to talk about, you know, building a business. I grew up in a multi-generational family manufacturing business, and we happen to manufacture boats. A lot of boats for the Navy during World War II, which is where the company really got its big first break. And then as we moved into the leisure years of the 50s and 60s, 70s and 80s, um, mostly recreational boats. And a lot of those recreational boats were sailboats. And some of those sailboats were racing sailboats. And I was um, growing up in the family business. One of the things you did was work on boats. And um, one of the best jobs I got, you know, through the... Uh, exposure to the family business and, and these owners, which were amazing people that would come from all over the world to buy the boats my father and grandfather built, uh, was a boat called Dragonfire owned by a guy named David Elliman from New York. And we campaigned that 42-foot sailboat up and down the eastern seaboard. And uh, we actually won what's known as the Northern Ocean Racing Trophy, um, uh, which is essentially sponsored by the Stanford Yacht Club, Stanford, Connecticut. We won that two years in a row and the first time ever with a perfect score, meaning we won every single qualifying race between Annapolis, Maryland, and Nova Scotia. So, so you're a, you're a the, sort of a third-generation entrepreneur. Um, why didn't you join the family business? That's a great question. So Hinkley Boats, my father and grandfather's business, is widely known in America as, as the premier quality boat builder in, in the country and in, in some respects the world, you know, depending on the class of boat that's being considered. And I did work for the family business my whole life, and then I worked for it for five years after college. And what I found is, at the end of the day, I didn't wake up and eat, breathe, and sleep boat building. It wasn't my, um, it wasn't what I wanted to self-actualize into being was, you know, the next great boat builder because I knew I just wasn't it. I, my grandfather and father cast an incredibly long shadow 
And I admitted to myself when I was about 25 years old that I would never cast a shadow longer than them. And I, and I, and I decided to find something I was a little more passionate about where I could uh, self-actualize into the, the same level of success they were, uh, but in a different vertical. And the vertical I chose is technology. Well, let's talk about that because um, the company was called Bullhorn. Uh, maybe describe a little bit about what you guys did. So Bullhorn uh, was the first software as a service uh, CRM, customer relationship management software for the recruiting and staffing industry. And we grew when we started, we had 120 competitors and we grew to uh, the number one category killer. By the time we sold it in 2012, number one in the world, the largest software producer for recruiting and staffing firms. So headhunting firms, temporary placement agencies, they primarily use Bullhorn to manage their candidates, their clients, and the jobs that they're filling out on behalf of their clients. So if it's a little different from your straight salesforce.com CRM, which is sort of a one-to-one sale. You're selling widgets to customers, you know, versus in the staffing and recruiting world, you've got a three-sided sale. You're essentially, you know, you're, you're convincing candidates why they, you, they should let you, you, your agency place them. You're convincing companies why they should let you fill their job orders. And then you're convincing the companies and the candidates on why they should hire each other. So a little more complicated than your average sale, which is why building a specific product like Bullhorn uh, turned out to be a winning proposition. So were there Salesforce.com sort of applications or add-ons that you competed with or LinkedIn, sort of their, their recruiter product that's come out more recently? Is it, would, that, would they be considered competitive in any way? Um, not really. You know, the real competition we had were products that were specifically purpose-built for the recruiting and staffing industry. You really couldn't take a general CRM and make it effective for that three-sided sale that I had just outlined. So they were, they were vestigial companies that had been in the space for sometimes decades that we ended up upending. And one of, the, one of the ways we upended them was, you know, our Achilles heel in the beginning was we were software as a service in, you know, 2002 when no one would let go of their data when you told them, hey, we're a moderately, if not profitable, viable company. And we want to take all your data and we're going to store it and manage it for you. That was a really tough value proposition in 2002. We started and by the end, it became the, the key value proposition. Now, talk about the starting. Talk, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Barry, but talk, talk about the beginning because um, you've, you started this company with some, some founders. Uh, maybe talk about yeah. what, who they were and what each of you brought to the table. That's funny you mentioned brought to the table. So we had a saying that um, I'm, I'll give myself credit for coming up with. Uh, I didn't certainly come up with all the good ideas, but a couple of them. But one of our sort of founding principles was we are what we aren't. And, you know, I was the, the missionary sales guy, the guy that could convince that staffing company to let go of their data and allow us to manage it for them. And in the world before that was cool. You know, Art Pappas, the uh, second co-founder, uh, who's still there today, was chief technology officer, and he built and wrote all the original code. Then Roger Colvin, uh, who we, uh, we, we kidnapped from Deloitte and Touche, was our CFO and sort of kept the trains running on time and, and, and make sure all the money was counted. Our investors were treated with the uh, most respect uh, they were due, uh, investing in an early stage startup like Bullhorn. So let's talk about starting. I mean, how did you guys get the thing up to the first, you know, 500 or a million dollars in sales? Uh, is this all on your own dime or did you get some early seed round money or what was that like? Well, we were lucky in that 99, it was a real pendulum time. So the pendulum was swinging pretty far uh, towards uh, 
the company side. In other words, it was pretty easy to raise money in 99 in those first heady days or late heady days, I guess, in hindsight of the internet boom. So we were able to raise $1.2 million in angel money pretty easily because people were taking a lot of winnings off the table and, and placing new bets. Um, by April of 2012, the door had kind of closed on us because the internet crashed. Do you mean, sorry, and, Barry, do you uh, mean April 2002? Uh, was it a, a, April 2000, sorry, 2002. Yeah, no, April 2000, sorry, okay. when the internet okay. crashed. Right? It was April 2000, sorry. Yeah, April 2000, when I think was when the, um, the NASDAQ cratered. And things got really difficult after that. We were still able to close a significant round led by General Electric after that, but the terms were pretty were much more austere than they had been, uh, a little less company-friendly, uh, which at the time we didn't really realize was going to create a drag coefficient, but it definitely made it uh, more difficult to grow the company over time because of some of the rights and privileges uh, that, that we negotiated away when we did that deal. Um, so, uh, and as, you know, we, we kind of went through the dot-com crash and that first tech recession, it was really tough for a while because we were still in development, right? With software, you got to spend a couple of years building and testing the thing, and then you got to convince your beta customers to, to actually risk their business on it and use it, which isn't easy. Yeah, so the environment really shifted after the dot-com crash, and you know, raising subsequent rounds of money became incredibly difficult. And we were always a development stage company that the early investors were investing in. So you know, development stage means you have to develop it, then you have to find beta customers to test it, and this takes you know sometimes a couple, two, three years. So all of a sudden, the market shifted from like you know bankrolling development stage companies and all our investors saying, yeah, we're in for the next round. Whatever you need, we'll help you through this development process so you get a product. It shifted overnight to like, oh, you don't have profit? You don't have revenue? Well, your valuation just went from 10 million to 1 million. And if you want more money, we're going to completely wipe the cap table clean, wipe you out. So it, it, we went through an incredibly difficult time period, um, not only to survive and get this product out the door, but with no money at all to sell it, to market it, nothing, uh, and, and, and no money to even really finish the product. So you know, by hook or by crook, we scraped together some money and we got it done. But we went through a real desert of hope um, for literally four years until we, we got enough traction that we could raise money again and, and continue to expand the company and build a product. But it w was a very difficult time post.com crash. Let's 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 sort of unpack some of those those rights and privileges that you had to give up, because, again, you know, for for folks listening, uh, you know, many of us have never raised a round of venture capital. You know, doesn't you know aren't aren't aware of what a term sheet would look like, let alone sort of some of the rights and privileges that that should be there versus those that are that are maybe a little bit overreaching by the investor. So, can you give me an example of a couple of those those rights and privileges that that you would deem to be fairly austere? Yeah. So one of the one of the sort of the inverse cor correlation. Uh, to logic about investing in venture companies is very often um, your mindset would think that if you're invested in a company earlier at a lower valuation, that when the company gets bigger, you're going to do a lot better. So apples for apples, that's true, right? So let's say you invest at a company with one million, you invest $100,000 at a $1 million valuation, you're going to have 10% of the company, right? And when that company grows up to be a billion-dollar company, that's going to be worth a crap load of money, and your $100,000 is going to be, you know, whatever, pick a, pick a multiple, right? Now, but what happens with venture investing is 
very often the the first money, the last money in has the most right, most rights and privileges because very often companies will get in positions like we got in where we didn't have very many options because the market had completely swung the other way. And so to get money, we, you have to give away a lot of privileges uh, that, that are associated with the, whatever um, type of uh, stock they're buying. And generally that stock is known as preferred stock. And with that preferred stock, it's preferred over the earlier rounds. You know, the first round of stock is, is the common, right, when you, when you form the company. And then you have the angel rounds, and they're going to have certain rights. And the, and the different rights are, um, you know, they're generally associated with what's known as anti-dilution. So, uh, and, and so the deal that we ended up doing, you know, not only were, was the preferred stock that came in later um, anti-dilutive, um, they even had a double dip where they actually got increased. So if you did a round at a lower valuation than they invested in, they not only got their stock back, they got, they got a bonus. <laughs> Right? So they're almost they're like not even motivated in the same direction as you. So you have to watch out for these things. These com- venture companies, they specialize in popping in these rights that give them, you know, really an, uh, amazing privileges, no matter which way the stock moves. Um, you know, very often they'll come with board seats. Uh, most likely they come with board seats, but also they'll come with certain rights about raising money. Like they can block you from raising money. Like they have to sign off on any money you raise, and and the deal we did, it took us once the market had swung, we needed to raise some bridge money. It took us, I think, fifteen months to raise just over a million dollars, just to negotiate, you know, the rights of how that would look. That kind of drag, that kind of drag coefficient on a company is brutal because you don't want me negotiating terms of a stock deal. You want me out selling new software, you know. Yeah, so no, I I get it. Really, and so in your case, why was why why did it take you fifteen beyond just the marketplace had turned? What what was GE? You know, why were they balking at at the terms or the deals that you were bringing to the table? Why did it take fifteen months? I I, I don't know. I'm not them. I but it wasn't in their interest to rush. And, you know, very often investors will, will be like, you know, if, if things get a little tougher for the company, I mean, what you, what you, whenever you're dealing with a venture company, the best thing you can ever do is have a bunch of them fighting over your business. Because if you're dealing with one person and they're calling all the shots, there's a really clear playbook that all the venture capital firms have. And you can't fault them for it. They're in the business of making money. They're high stakes money lenders. They lose, you know. Two out of three of their deals don't work in many cases, so they have to make it up on the one that does. And it is in their interest to invoke every right and privilege they can, right? And very often, one of the things they use most commonly is time. And they know the longer the company is struggling for money and they need to make a payroll or something else, they're going to get better terms, right? What Not else in their in interest. The, what else is in that playbook? Well, I mean, you can look it up anywhere. I mean, it's you know it's 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 all rights and privileges that are associated with with the series of stocks that they're buying, and it's you know it's board seats sometimes it's two board seats sometimes it's you know a double dip, you know it, it you know as it relates to how much stock they get uh, when the next round is done, um, sometimes it's interest you know um, retroactive interest that that's, that accumulates on you know so it's not just a a, a stock instrument it's also a note. 
you know, so they're getting their stock plus they're getting some type of preferential interest that will convert to more stock. There's, there's all kinds of things they do to, to add value to whatever type of stock they're, they're holding. And every single one of them is going to try to negotiate as many of those terms as possible. Standard playbook. Sounds like a pretty stressful time. Yeah. Well, when you're, when in that case we were, no one was, the market had swung the other day. No one was buying early stage pre-revenue, you know, dot com. Even though we were a survivor of the explosion, we're one out of a hundred companies that actually made it through the explosion. We're still, you know, they tend to, you know, they're they're market makers, right? And they move in the market, and the market moved from everyone overpaying for high risk stock to no one paying anything for stuff that was even lower risk than the stuff they were investing in last year. You know, and so when the market moves, and you only have one, and when you only have one bidder because they're in, they're they're already on your cap table, and, and they they're not going to let anyone else in. They can they call the shot. But that changed for us as we built a successful company. And you know when we did our our next round, we we're you know doing seventeen million dollars in value in, in revenue, and we had five or six companies fighting over us. So we got the right much better terms. Now before we get there, I just want to go back to the dynamic between you, Art and Roger as co-founders in this very stressful time, 15 months to raise money. I mean, take me into that, into, into those boardroom discussions, just the three of you guys over a beer. I mean, are you on the same page? Is there, is there dissension among the ranks? Like, how are you guys dealing with it as a team? I mean, I'm smiling and my hair standing on end, literally on my arms, my head right now, thinking about it. It was such an amazing time. We never once turned on each other. We just, we were so joined at the hip. We we had such a clear division of who was good at what. We've been through so much together already that we just, you know, you know, certainly the grind of like it'll happen next week, it'll happen next week, happen next week, which went on for months, was exhausting. But it was a really, it, it, you know, it took what could have been a very divided, divisive period, and it, it just it unified us more as a team, which only made us more effective. You know, you know, building the business down the road. A lot of founders would have crushed under the pressure. What was it about your team beyond just the clearly delineated lines of specialization? I mean, what else did you guys have? What was the secret sauce that bound you through that? Well, we all had the same thing. They were just a little different. Raj and Art had amazing wives and, and young families that, that they were completely dedicated to. Um, I, had, I was a single dad with a five-year-old daughter struggling to support her, you know, that had been divorced, you know, five years earlier when we, you know, literally, you know, two months before we founded Bullhorn. Um, and they're over my dead body. Was I going to fail again? And over de my dead body, was I going to fail, you know, on my daughter's watch? And that, those, that common goal of family that we all had, even a question whether we'd succeed. It was just uh, how much, how many bumps and bruises we have to take until we did. Awesome. So you get through this time, and 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 you're you're building this company up to seventy million. I mean, like how much how much of the company do you guys still own at this point? I mean, I'm curious to know because at some point you must have thought, you know, we're so diluted, uh, we've given up so yeah. much of this. What's the point? Well, so what, interesting. So there's two types of winning, right? There's winning and getting as much money as possible, and there's winning and doing the right thing. And we were all raised by great families that were that we didn't even realize this until we just realized how similar we were over the years. That it was all there was never a question of 
of what the right thing to do was. And when during that 15 month period, when it was really difficult to raise money, but what happened in the venture community was this common theme that they would go to companies like us, they'd go to founders that, that clearly were getting traction. We were starting to sell product. You know, things were happening. There was a path. There was a clear path to success. It just was occluded by the market. The common thing the ventures would do at that time was they'd go to the companies and they'd say, hey, wipe the cap table clean, bankrupt the company, we'll buy the IP for you know whatever, we'll give you 20% of the company back for three founders in options, you can divide it up. But you have to screw everyone that was there with you. And we said no, because a lot of these people are family and friends who were in the round before General Electric. Actually, they all were family and friends. And we weren't going to screw these people. So we kept all those people in that first, you know, the, the, the Series A, excuse me, the Series A round. We kept them all on the raft as, as it's known. And that caused us an immense amount of dilution. And we, we ended up giving up, you know, many, many millions of dollars of future value to us individually to keep those folks on the raft. But all those people ended up getting a return, you know, 12 years later when we sold the business. So, um, that was awesome, but very dilutive, which brought all of us down into the you know single digits from an equity point of view. And and maybe maybe it's just because I'm I'm obtuse uh, and thick, but help me understand why why keeping them on the raft would dilute you. Maybe just take me through the math there, because so they're they're original investors. They would have they would have been given a share because the the valuation we took the new money at which was insignificant amount of money I mean a little over a million a million and a half bucks or something um was so low that the dilution of that money was drove us to a a holding that would have been less than if they we'd wiped them off the cap table and taken their equity for ourselves in a newly formed business gotcha gotcha Gotcha. Was there? I mean, was there? Was there a? Was there an approach where you guys could build the business without outside capital? I mean, did you contemplate just putting the brakes on and and growing through your own cash flow? No, you can't do that. Not in the, not in the venture game. The reason none of these, you know, Uber, I mean, Uber can't even do that. <laughs> right. So the reason all these companies soak up big venture money is because it's so competitive in the world of technology. You need to grow faster. You need, to, you need to grow artificially fast, you know, because one year in technology is four years, right? One year in the real world is four years in technology. We kind of live in this like almost dog year world where every quarter is really a year. And yeah, you need but, to be growing at 30% year over year. You're, you're not considered a valuable company in world technology if you're not growing at least 30%. Yeah, but hear, hear me out. So, so, so you've got this venture cup, this, the, the austere, the austere uh, terms that, that GE's put on in your deal. Um, you know, you've got the family and friends who are basically supportive of you. At one point, couldn't you have turned to GE and said, well, you know, we're not going to grow because the terms you're putting on the table are so punitive that it's not worth us to us to grow. So if you want to put us out of business, go ahead. But we're not going to grow just just to fuel your balance sheet. Was that a- we tried that and we tried that and they sent us certified letters to put and they sent they sent someone to fire us all and uh, put the business company out of business. They tried it. Really? So it did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I still have the certified letter they sent me, firing <laughs> us all. We actually they showed up. We evacuated the office. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> We didn't talk to him for over two years. We just said, screw him. We're not talking to him. We didn't talk to him for over two years. 
And we built the company slowly. We raised this money. They gradually signed off on it. And, uh, you know, which was really just an acquisition of a, uh, of a, of a defunct company that had a little cash on its balance sheet left of a founder I happened to know. And, uh, you know, we got the money in the bank and we slowly built it, kept it going. And we, by hook or by crook, and we slowly built their trust back. And, uh, you know, we slowly became friends again. But so, so had, wait a minute. They had so written you get, us off. They so, wrote us off totally. Okay. So you got to tell me what happened. So you get these letters that are basically you're fired. <laughs> so what happens yeah, next? Close, close are, the business and you're fired. Yeah. So what happens we next? Just ignored did, it. Just ignored it. And did your paycheck for, still? For three still, years. Your for paycheck years still came. What's that? Your paychecks continued to clear. Like they, they didn't shut. The, well, they, you know, they didn't like, have any of that kind of, they didn't have any operational control. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you literally just ignored it. Yeah. That's awesome. Three years. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and so, I'm friendly with all these guys now. You know, we're still friends. I mean, they ended up getting, you know, did nothing. And they ended up getting like, you know, a 2x return on their money, you know, which for .com, 99.com money, all of which went bust one way or another. Most of it, that was a great return. Not bad. Yeah, not bad. So t- so fast forward, uh, the next round, you build this company up, $17 million in revenue. You're, you're, you're now out of the woods. I mean, walk me through the negotiation stance or posture that you have with VCs in this next round where you've got a little bit more leverage. Maybe walk us through how that was different. Well, you know, Roger, our CFO, did most of the, 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 the tertiary negotiations, right? Because, you know, the, 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 you know, I'm the guy out keeping the revenue up and making sure we hit our quarterly goals so we can maintain that 30% growth rate. So Roger and Art, you know, Art was busy developing and keeping pace. He was getting more and more of a hand in operations at that point in time. Um, you know, because he was he moved from CTO to CEO and I was president, so we co co ran the business. So we were busy, you know, keeping the trains on time from a technology development and sales point of view. And Roger was busy. Um, presenting the company in, in the most positive manner possible. Uh, and, you know, to do that, you really just have to make sure that um, one of the things about hiring a guy from Deloitte and Touche is, you know, your, your, your house is always going to be in order and squeaky clean. We ran that business so squeaky clean, like every receipt, everything. Like we didn't do anything with personal, nothing. Um, and so when, when he opens the books up and shows these companies and they're, used to dealing with these startups that are a mess. And you'll see in Deloitte and Touche style books with every I dotted and T crossed. Then it comes down to like, all right, what's your technology look like? You know, how good is it? And, and what are your sales look like? And then, you know, once you, once the word gets out that you have a squeaky clean set of books and you're growing at 30% a year and, and you're, you're in, the, in a, you kind of did the Wayne Gretzky skate to where the puck is going to be because you we're doing software as a service before it was cool. Next thing you know, you got five people fighting over you. And then it comes down to two things, valuation and terms. And so what valuation, uh, maybe you can't get into specifics, but sort of how was the valuation different? What was it, was it higher than the last round? And, and maybe what were the terms that you were able to negotiate for differently than, than the round before? Well, it was, well, was, you know, $40 million valuation. So, you know, you have to sell less of the company to raise you know more money. Um, so yeah, the terms were better, you know, you know, they're, they're never exactly what you want because, you know, even when you get down to the, sh- you know, once again, remember time we talked about earlier, once you sort of decide and for your listeners is very important 
the most important thing you can take away from this entire thing is when you get in negotiations with someone, find out who the decision maker is on the team because there'll be a bunch of MBA associates that'll do all the grunt work. Then there'll be a partner that owns the deal that has to present the deal to his partners at the table, right? And, you know, the associates do all the grunt work, you know, the due diligence. So important that you look, you look that guy in the eye after you've had a bunch of meetings, you've agreed on general terms, you've agreed on valuation. You shake his hand, you look him in the eye, and you say, I will do this deal with you under one condition. Okay, I'll say what? You say, there is no retrading of this deal. Because one of the famous moves these VCs will play is they'll get you to commit to them. The four other people that are at the table will go away and forget about you and move on to the next deal, lose interest. They know they have you. They'll drag you out for sometimes months on due diligence items until you're exhausted. And then at the last minute, they'll cram in something like, listen, we need you to expand the option pool from 10% to 20%, but we want you to take that last 10% out of your shares, not ours. And you're exhausted, so you say yes, but then you just got screwed. Is that what you did in the case of this, the $17 million, When you reached the, the $40 million round, did you actually look the guy in the eye and say, no retrading? Well, every single deal. We learned that one from GE, and we actually luckily did it with the lead guy at GE. Um, which is the only way, reason we closed that deal because we closed the deal with GE, the first deal, you know, the $4 million deal we did with them in uh, October of 2000. Keep in mind, this is exactly five months after, six months after the dot-com crash in April. And we still closed the deal on relatively not like, you know, lose that, you know, gamble away the house type terms. And only because months before we looked him in the eye, I, I shook Pat's hand. I said, you're not going to retrade on this deal. And, and he, was a, he was a man of his word. Um, but you can really get yourself, that's a pretty key move because you know anyone that you want to deal with will remember that conversation. You can bring it up. So you said, no retrading, no retrading, because <laughs> they'll all try it. They'll drag it. They'll run out the clock and, and try to throw in a couple little sneaky little things at the end. And, and did you call them on it and, and call their bluff during diligence and said, said, hey, you guys said no retrading. Did you ever have to do that in the, in the $40 million? Yeah, we, yeah, you have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it. You have to do it. You know, because you know, keep in mind, so we were fortunate because we're in the, in the, in the employment industry, right? So in uh, November of 2000, Roger came into my office. He's like, well, I think we need to go out and raise some money now. I'm like, why? He's like, well, you know, um, <laughs> We're, you know, recruiters use Bullhorn to put people to work, put thousands of people to work a day all over the world. We, we saw the job data trending down in the fall of 2000. And we're like, we could be getting at the top of this market, right? So we went out for money when things were still heady. But, you know, we closed ours in June of 2008. Think what happened three months later, right? Big old crash. Mm. So the the, peop, the people in the money markets were probably already feeling the um, the things were softening up because these guys are so close to it. So there was some times we certainly had to remind them. It never got tenuous. Got it. And, and so once you was... do that, once you do that, you know, you take that off the table, right? And then it comes down to like, you know, basic T's and C's, not new T's and C's. Right. Right. You know, just finalizing what you've roughly agreed to. Once you um, once you did the forty million dollar round, what was the next step? I mean, was the next step actually selling selling the whole thing? Was there was there a third round of financing? No, that was it. So then we that was then we really finally had some money to grow. We've been growing kind of like a tiny little you know tiny balance sheet, you know, just by growing by really you know I call it advanced bootstrapping. 
and and hard work. And this finally gave us some money so we could have a mar- a proper marketing department. Um, I went over to Europe and expanded it to Europe, which became our fastest growing division. Uh, we, we finally had some breathing room so we could grow the business and hire some you know tier one talent in, in sales and marketing and move from a sales team where I'm doing 50% of the sales and then I got six you know six bad news bears behind me you know <laughs> what I mean cleaning up the quarter or we could get a real sales manager in VP to you know build out an organization and that so that's when we became a much more professional organization much more structured organization was after that round and we could grow in a structured manner rather than a you know hooker by crook manner. Barry, you know, pardon me for asking, but I got I to gotta ask the question. So you, you've diluted yourself uh, from an equity perspective go, through, through the, the, the rounds. Are, are you at least able to, and I, I just, I'm asking this out of ignorance, are you able to, to increase your personal salary as you raise money um, to something that's at least market rate? Um, it, to almost compensate the, for the fact that you're not, you're not, you don't, you don't have as much sweat equity in the game. So, so at least pay me uh, like a, a like a, a, a retailer or a market rate salary. I mean, did you were you able to negotiate that? I guess in in the in the terms. Yeah. So the the terms you'll find with um, all of these deals, what happens is a comp committee is formed. That's a derivative of the board, and it's it's always outside people, not inside people, just for, not just for optics, but for governance. But you'll find that these, um, what the general consensus with outside investors uh, with comp committees is de-stress the entrepreneur, especially if they're married. Last thing you need is a stressed out mom at home worrying about bills getting paid and about dad's working, you know, 80 hours a week. Because that kind of stress that's accumulated by maybe saving a little money on a salary is compounded in negative effects on the business and its growth. So, yeah, we were all able to move to a market rate um, salary. What we did to ourselves, though, is we didn't give ourselves big salaries. We gave ourselves bases that we could at least cover the nut. And then if we hit our sales numbers and growth numbers, we all got nice bonuses where we could mm-hmm. breathe. And, we all, and, and our numbers were aggressive. We grew at 30% a year, year over year, uh, which is not easy to do the bigger the number gets. And we always hit our numbers. We never missed it. I think, God, I can't remember, for 10 quarters in a row when I was running sales, we didn't miss a quarter. Hmm. And um, maybe more. I can't remember how many years. It was like five years, whatever that is, five, 20 quarters. Um, and, uh, and, and so we got nice bonuses, uh, but they were, they were earned for sure. It wasn't just like, oh, here's a fat salary. Go off and play golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And so talk about the actual final sale. Ultimately, um, you, you did sell the company. Maybe talk a little bit about that. No, I wasn't in as, as involved with the final sale. Um, it was, it, it was, you know, once once you start getting into the big numbers and you're you're bumping up on fifty million in revenue, things like that, you're attractive to a much larger base of acquirers, right? Because you know, I, I don't know how many uh, investor type people, private equity type people you meet, but once you get to that level, you move from venture back, right, to private equity private equity acquired. So then, then a private equity firm is looking to buy you because you're a fast growing business and they, and they have, you know, these are the multi-billion dollar funds that they have that they can pay a significant amount of money. They can, they can give you a bunch of money to grow. They can give you money to acquire other businesses, which is what happens with Bullhorn acquired a couple competitors and they're interested in just building a much bigger firm. So, you know, uh, this to the company and I keep on, I was not super involved with this because I left about year but i was involved as a significant shareholder but i wasn't involved in negotiations they came 
uh, you know, made a couple a couple passes, and finally, you know, it was decided that the valuation could be high enough that the existing shareholders could get a nice return, and it would be a good time to, uh, you know, it'd been five years, good time to six years, good time to take it to the next level, grow it. And so, because it, it, all, cause what, all you got to think about is like maybe something we need to clear up here about like kind of like the term sale. When you start a venture back company, you're always for sale because at every level you sell a piece of your business. And sometimes you take, you, you get, you know, they'll offer you a chance to take a little equity off the table. You know, and that's very common. That's all, and this is what we did on the $40 million round. We all took about a million dollars off the table, which allowed us to pay off our mortgages and, and have a college savings account, which is two big de-stressors in, in an entrepreneur's life. And so a lot of times that'll happen in the middle round and they'll encourage the entrepreneurs to do that, to de-stress them so they can be more focused. So, and then at the end of these venture companies, there's two ways they get sold. They get sold to a, a well, three ways, private equity firm, they get acquired by um, a larger company, generally a public company that has public currency they can use or, they, or you go public. And in your um, case, you guys, sales. you guys sold, I think the ultimate valuation was 135 million. Who did you sell to? Uh, Vista Equity Partners in um, Austin, Texas. Got it. Which is a PE firm, a private equity firm in Texas. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Got it. And and I know we have to be careful n not to talk too much about uh, about valuations of the final round, but I mean, did did it, it sounds like the guys who put in the $40 million got a decent return when the whole thing was sold for No, we raised at a $40 million valuation. <laughs> we raised $26 million at a $40 million valuation. Okay. Got it. Got it. So the, the, the valuation was going up, I'm assuming, uh, by the end? Yeah, we, we, we went from 40 to 135, so they were happy. Yeah. Two and a half X on their money, great. Sure, 3X, sure. what is that, 3X? Yeah, 3X, a little more. Yeah, and how many how many years did they were they in for? 08, uh, so four years. Got it, got it. That's a good return. You know? Yeah. It's not it's not a home run, like these guys, like, they like the 10 bangers, but that's a good, you know, that's a good uh, crown rule double. Yeah, no, for sure. Especially 08 to 2012 wasn't exactly a great year for uh, uh, a lot of companies. So, uh, so you guys. Obviously... Well, the first couple of years were tough for sure. Yeah, yeah. eight to ten was. No one was going jumping jacks, yeah. back handsprings or whatever. <laughs> hey Barry, go back to the very beginning. Um, you're just starting the business with Art and Roger. What would you do differently if you had it to do all over again? Well. The biggest mistake we made early on was we got a bunch of money at you know relatively good terms because it was pre dot com crash and we weren't disciplined enough on how we spent the money. Um, and we spent we spent too much money when the when that when it was easy to get money and by the time we needed money it was really hard to get money and we wished we had a lot of that back. I mean, if I'd just taken half of it and bought the building we did we were in, we would have you know killed it on that alone. <laughs> so I would have definitely. And I, and I run my new company now. I've started another company called Yachtme, which is doing very well. It's an app, a social app. And, you know, I am so austere with the cash because I, I, and I, all my employees laugh, laugh at me. And I tell them, listen, I'm a Depression-era baby. I lived through the <laughs> dot-com crash when, when 99 out of 100 companies that were started went bust. And we made it, and we learned a lot of lessons. And, you know, just like, you know, your great-grandmother who lived through the Depression, who your family probably still tells stories about how she's, you know, you, you know, darning her husband's socks that are 10 years old. You know, I'm, you know, we're the same guy uh, because we lived through the time when there was no money. You never know when your next dollar's coming from, especially when you're pre, pre-revenue. Love it. Glad you brought up Yachty. Just Value the dollar. 
That's yeah. the dollar. <laughs> Glad you brought up Yachtme. So just in a, in a nutshell, what do you guys do? Yachtme is a social app. It allows you to uh, build a profile on Yachtme, and then uh, through the app, you can uh, either host or attend parties with people who you've never met. So it's a way to pe- meet people socially, not in bars, not online. So we call ourselves the first social app that's truly social. So, and over time, you build a social profile that's validated, third-party validated by people you meet. So you build a LinkedIn-type profile of vouchers and endorsements, and you use that profile to go to parties and meet people you don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And and people endorse you and say, yeah, Barry's a good guy, gets a, gets a thumbs yeah. up. Yeah, neat. Yeah, Keeps exactly. you honest, for yeah, sure. No so, yeah, it's fun. So and how are, you, for the, uh, how are you like financing YachtMe? Um, so I did Angel. And I did friends and family first and a lot of my own cash. And then we did an angel round with a, uh, a company called Boss, Accomplice Boss, which is a, an angel group out of Boston that's associated uh, uh, with Atlas Ventures. And it is a group of former CEOs. And they have a, a, a mantra to invest in successful CEOs like me and my partner, Art. Pappas and Phil Bohorn. So Art led the round, and their motto is they invest in guys like us. They have a funny little saying, actually. They have a saying that in San Francisco, uh, people that have had success, entrepreneurs that have had successful exits um, start two new companies, and um, entrepreneurs in Boston that have had successful exits uh, buy a boat and a house on the Cape. So their mission is to try to get guys like me to start another company. So for me, it was never a question whether I was going to start another company because that's all I know how to do. Um, but uh, anyway, we're part of that fund. So we did our angel round with them and a bunch of uh, you know friends and, and family in um, last fall, October 15, and then raising a little more, a little bridge round right now. And um, that'll, that'll easily take us to our Series A, you know, our, our first institutional round well uh, well i'll uh i'll jump back into the uh the shark tank with the, the vc community and, and raise a, a, a proper institutional series a sometime next year yeah very well armed it sounds like uh yacht me is the app barry where do people get a hold of you where should are you on linkedin or do you have a website where, where can people find you yeah you can just find me barry hinkley on linkedin um you can download my app on the app store google play we're actually about to release new version here in the middle of November, which is, you know, takes us out of beta. We've been in alpha and beta, and now we're going to general release with a really, really awesome, cool new product uh, mid-November, and you can find it at the uh, App Store or Google Play. Barry Hankley, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.